Exceptions, but oh god, sometimes the pick seems so long. That's right, this is the pick, the movie podcast for every episode. Somebody picks a movie, we talk about it, and at the end of the episode, someone else picks another movie. No questions asked. It's low concept, high fun. That's the power of the pick. It's all about the rules. And we are your hosts, John Otney, Colin Westman, and Sean Lemmy. And today we are discussing. Frankie D's 1999 adaptation of Stevie K's 1996 novel, The Green Mile, starring Thomas Jeffrey Hanks. Because, guys, it's Hanksgiving. I wanna Hanks you for letting me be myself. Not a lot of good songs with thanks in the title. That's that's the one I went with. Um... Just, we don't need to get into it. Yeah, or maybe we'll get into it later because it, it it's, will actually come up again at the end of the episode. Okay, um, okay. So we're talking the Green Mile. Uh, but first, little picks. And since we're doing uh, something Stephen King related, uh, that uh, is why I picked uh, a book of short stories by Joe Hill, which is Stephen King's son, called Full Throttle. But there's actually a couple stories in this collection that were written by father and son. Um, in particularly the title story, Full Throttle, which is about a killer truck that's going after a biker gang. Uh, so it's kind of like Duel meets Sons of Anarchy. But it's good. It's good. I like it. Um, Stephen King sure has written a lot, written a lot of stories about uh, killer cars and trucks. And, and magic cars and trucks. Yeah. yeah. What's his fixation? Got a problem with that? I don't know. It's just interesting. You know, there's, there's Christine. I mean, he did. Didn't he get yeah. hit by a truck at one point? Yeah. He almost died. Which weirdly was like kind of after he had written some of those <laughs> stories. It's like he knew. Yeah, because he wrote, he wrote Christine. He wrote Trucks, which became Maximum Overdrive. From a Buick 8, which is about a magical car. This is about a killer truck. And then he almost got killed by a truck. There's scary trucks know. in Pet Cemetery. Yeah, the scary truck uh, killed the kid. Yeah. It's an interesting thing that he likes to return to. But no, this is mostly uh, Joe Hill stories. and I've been a fan of his for a while. I think just... Um, he reminds me a lot of Steven, but he just feels more contemporary. Like... I love Stephen King, but even when I read some of his more modern stuff, it still feels like it's from like the seventies or the fifties. You know, he's an, he's an old dude. There's just something about the the kind of the small town folksiness of Stephen King's books that'll always feel like they're from some time in the past. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't help with like when he tries to be modern too. Do you guys remember when Stephen King wrote that book about like cell phones turning people's uh, people into zombies? It's called Cell. Became a movie that no one saw with John Cusack. What? It's funny because you look at the cast and you're like, I I feel like I would have heard about this. But it was like straight to DVD. 
It's it's John Cusack and Sam Jackson 1408 reunion. Whoa. And a movie about killer cell phones, but it came out in like 2012, like way too late. Hmm. Like the cover of the book is a bloody flip phone. So, <laughs> they just missed their chance. Uh but no, full throttle, check it out. Um a lot of good short stories. Joe Hill isn't quite as good as as his dad, but he's good. I like him. I've read most of his books. He hasn't had as much luck with his stuff getting turned into movies, but uh, not his fault. So, uh, we'll see. Yeah. Right. There's that Black Phone movie coming out. Scott Derrickson. That's based off of a, a Joe Hill short story. That that seems promising. So. <laughs> They're like Black Mirror is taken. What can we call it? Black got a scary phone well kind of it's kind of simplifying it but it does have ethan hawk as a murderer so that'll be fun a rare treat all right that's my little pick all right um i will go next because i i mean we've all been waiting to talk about this for a long time the the huge netflix hit uh right out of asia that uh set the world on fire this summer um been meaning to talk about it on the podcast for a long time i think it's finally time uh that we talk about sparking joy with marie kondo the sequel series <laughs> this is this is the second time we've done a bit like this because remember i almost i made it seem like i was going to pick squid game but then picked capicola <laughs> i mean gabagoo I, I i knew you were gonna <laughs> i knew too but i just think it's funny that we're going there again. fake us out <laughs> Also, did Squid Game come out in the summer? I feel like it was a September, October thing. I don't know. I don't know. Tell us about Sparking Joy. Uh, Yeah, so you remember how Marie Kondo had a show back in 2019? It came out on New Year's Day, the very first day of 2019. Yeah, yeah. Um, That one was done in a pretty typical home makeover um, style. Where you know you they introduce people who have a problem, which is always the same problem. They have an enormous house full of shit, um, and they need to get rid of their shit. Uh, and the, she would pop up and and help them. And then at the end of the episode, you'd have the you know the montage of this is what it looked like before, and now look at how nice it is. Um, and it was great because Marie Kondo is. Um, a, the most adorable person in the world, and B, ruthless, and uh, does not help people at all with the, with uh, actually doing the work. Like she she tells them what to do and how to approach their problems, and then she bounces, um, which is great. It, it made that that first season really fun because it's just people piling all their clothes on their bed and crying, and they're just alone filming themselves. Um. This sequel series uh, does uh, a lot more than that uh, to sort of better uh, advocate for the KonMari method, um, which which is ultimately a good thing, I think. Um, there's there's a lot less uh, Schadenfreude, and uh, there's there's also just a lot fewer episodes. I think there's only three episodes in this season. Um. And instead of it just being like this one problem-solving story now, um, 
she tries to help people with multiple aspects of their life, uh, especially uh, there's an emphasis on on organizing uh, workplaces. Um, so like the first episode, um, she's helping this um, family organize their um, flower shop garden. I don't know, like it's like a community garden thing. Uh, and there's like a coffee shop and a church, you know, different things than just like a houses that are full of stuff. Uh, which is also good because I think it would get exhausting to keep seeing these stories of um, Americans that have, you know, 50 room houses full of stuff. It's kind of depressing. Um, but she's also trying to help them work out their uh, interpersonal conflicts, which kind of feels tacked on. Um, and then there's also mixed in with that. She's giving uh, some insight into her own life uh, and her family and her tips on how to do things. Um, I still don't like fully buy into her <laughs> worldview. Um, but I, I really like, um, her, her, her first book and, uh, and just enjoy her approach. And it's always, I think, good to have motivation to, uh, get your shit in order. Uh, especially, uh, especially nowadays. And you, you would think there would be more of a quarantine aspect to it, but there isn't. Um, maybe, maybe that'll be her third series. Uh, when she comes back, presumably she'll come back. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, if you want to just quickly watch a little reality show about people and their problems, check out uh, Sparking Joy with Marie Kondo. Hmm, I am interested. Uh, okay. So my little pick is a video game. You could probably guess what it is, because I only have one console and I don't play a lot of video games. It is Metroid Dread. It is a game that I have almost beaten. I think I'm only going like based off of how many of Samus's like suit abilities I've unlocked. <laughs> and I feel like I've gotten most of them at this point. Like it has a little like graph showing all the different uh, abilities and I've, I've got most of them filled in at this point so I'm, I'm, I'm getting there um, does the game have a classic abilities at the beginning where you have all her powers and then she loses them well, for some that. reason um, it doesn't but it does have something kind of similar to that where throughout the game there are these zones where these super scary robots are like patrolling these zones and you basically can't kill them you just have to run away from them but at a certain point like in the oh, level at a certain point in the level you'll get this special beam that will allow you to actually kill them but you can only kill one at a time so after you kill the robot that beam gets taken away from you would you call it a special beam cannon uh yeah sure <laughs> nice Nice. Um, Okay, Piccolo. Uh, So wait, do you have to be like strategic about which one you kill? Like, if there's two, do you have to be like, I need to kill the one on the right so I can get to the door? No, I mean, there's only one. one There's only one robot per per zone, so it's basically you just have to kill this one. But 
it's still like super stressful. <laughs> so that's why it's called dread then, because you're being hunted by this predator robot. Yeah, exactly. There's a there's a stealth element to it where you gotta you gotta sneak around. Yeah, because you're dreading getting killed by a robot. Which I'm not even I don't know. They were pretty scary at first, but now I've gotten killed by them like a million times. So I'm just like every time I get caught by the robots, I'm just like bring it on. I'll try this over again without getting Can't killed. Can't you do um the like a counterattack against them to not take the damage in this? Yes, but you have to use the counter at like the exact precise time. And it's super oh. hard to time and like you'll you'll get it right like one out of 50 times basically i remember this you had the same problem with breath of the wild where you couldn't counter the uh the shots from the uh uh the whatever they're called the ancient machines that shoot the lasers at you yeah this is not your thing huh i guess i just have a countering guy yeah maybe i just I haven't logged as many hours playing video games, so my hand-eye coordination isn't laser precise <laughs> like most gamers. Yeah, but you're a musician; you got a, it's a good sense of time. Uh, I guess this is like this is just like a an, an action and reaction type of thing. It's not like rhythmic at all. <laughs> um. Anyways, it's uh, a Metroid game. <laughs> that feels very much like a, a classic metroid game and that they've returned to like the the side scrolling uh format from the you know first person shooters of the metroid prime games even though it is still using 3d graphics um yeah i mean judging by the color of her suit it looks like this is a sequel to uh, uh fusion right because she's got like yeah. the teal um those like little like the the parasite aspect of metroid fusion does play into this game eventually it seems like all the games actually are connected by by a, a chronology that i have long forgotten because uh, it's been forever since i've played a metroid game but well yeah i mean if your last one was fusion that was like 20 years ago well yeah i think my last one would have been I played Metroid Prime 2, and then I remember playing one for, like, the DS, but it was, I just feel like the controls were impossible, because, like, (laughs) I remember the little, the little pen thing being a huge aspect of it. It That's right. It just didn't... I think it was called Hunters? Yeah, it just didn't translate that well to, to the DS. Yeah, that's what I remember is getting hand cramps playing it for like 10 minutes. Yeah. It was just like an instant pain situation. Because you had to, with one hand, you had to hold the DS and use the shoulder button and the D-pad. All Like, all that's all happening with your left hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, having to simultaneously um, articulate your fingers and hold up the whole weight of the device that you're also pressing down on with the stylus. Uh, it was just a bad situation, even with little kid hands. <laughs> yeah, or, I mean teenager hands, yeah, whatever, whatever that came out. I'm sure, you had pretty fully grown hands, but <laughs> enough about Sean's hands, though. Um, it seems like this game's engine was actually based on like a a 3DS 
Metroid game that came out in like 2017. I guess Metroid Samus Returns, which is a remake of the, the second Metroid game, which I, d- I feel like no one cared about at all because it was 2017. That's like when the Switch came out. But, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, and also like Metroid 2 is, is you know, it's like um, the Super Mario Land of the Metroid series. It's like a sequel on Game Boy that yeah. cares about. Uh, but yeah, this one's good. I'm impressed that they're still able to incorporate all these new elements uh, into a game that is, you know, or I guess a format that has been improved upon and improved upon over the decades, but they're still finding new things for Samus to do. Uh, yeah, I like it. Nice. Oh, and also, unlike a lot of the previous Metroid games, it makes it very clear like what place you are supposed to go next after <laughs> completing a certain portion of the map. Like, it's great. There's a lot of like backtracking in in a lot of Metroid games, and this doesn't have this like at all. It like kind of holds your hand in a way that I very much appreciate. Yeah, that seems like a good thing because for me, it was always like a sense of uh, like FOMO because uh, like the way the game would work is you'd go down a path to a certain point and you would unlock a piece of kit, mm-hmm. and then you're supposed to just remember all these places that you had passed before where you can go back and use that kit to to get into things that you couldn't get into before and it always was just like god i don't remember i don't remember all those little nicks and crannies yeah missing out on precious missile packs and shield also packs yeah I mean, the, the, that aspect is there, but I just, you know, you know me, I'm not a completist in video games. I just <laughs> gotta do the bare minimum that I have to do to get by. Yeah, well, yeah you're like a wannabe speedrunner. Kind of, you know. I'm just not good enough <laughs> to finish a game that quickly. I mean, this game's not even that long and I still haven't quite finished it. Ooh, let's find out. How long to beat.com Metroid Dread. Um, the average run, uh, eight and a half hours. Mm. Would you say you're over or under that? Right oh, now? I'm probably over at that point. At this point. Okay. Well, main plus extras is ten and a half. Uh, completionist twelve and a half. Mm-hmm. So getting a hundred percent twelve and a half hours. You think you're at twelve and a half? Yeah, maybe. So you're getting to be at the the upper limit. Let's see the slowest playtime. Someone took sixteen hours. Hmm. So you got to beat that guy. <laughs> yeah. Also, I'm a, I'm a real loser. Also, this guy's like hardcore enough that he's reporting his time to how long to, to beat.com. So who really knows? You guys know what else is long. Oh, I do. Yeah. I really do. Oh, yeah. Green Mile. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the Green Mile is just so long. <laughs> Guys, is this movie too long? 
It's got to be at least 5,280 feet. <laughs> so is it too long, or is that, is that about right? Uh, I'm just... I mean, probably. I'd be interested to see what a shorter cut of this movie is like. Because <laughs> this movie, kind of like The Burbs, does have a hangout movie feel. This guy's hanging out in a jail. Watching miracles. We're watching all of Tom Hanks' best hangout movies. Yeah, I'm sure that's what Cloud Atlas will be like, too. Sean, you've seen, you'd seen this before, right? This is my second time seeing it. Okay. And is, do you think this movie's too long? No, I do not. I think it is paced pretty fast. And honestly, I would have gone for even more character development than we got because mm-hmm. there's not a ton yeah you know i'm it's weird it's this is kind of my go-to like i know this movie's long but i don't mind that it's long because you, you can tell that it's long because it's like they're just getting as as much from the book as they can fit into this movie i think stephen king said on the dvd commentary because i guess he does a commentary track that this is the most faithful adaptation of any of his books which I found strange because, like, he wrote the screenplay to Pet Cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he. I mean, well, I, I. But as Frank Darabont can attest, sometimes your script doesn't necessarily translate to what's actually in the movie. True. Uh, we were just talking about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein before we started recording. Also, that just reminded me of because uh, we talked about Stephen King when we did the Dead Zone, and like he submitted a script where like Cronenberg was like, "This is so bad." <laughs> <laughs> it's like a slasher movie now so it's like it's funny sometimes you know uh great writers or artists don't even recognize what's good about their work so i i, I could get it i think frank darabont definitely gets stephen king because i mean he made shawshank which is still the number one greatest movie of all time according to imdb i saw that uh green mile is also on that list you guys want to guess where it is on that list 87 Guess one sixty three. Twenty nine. Wow. Whoa. What? People love to be Frank Darabont in prison. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it is. I'm not really sure. I've never really understood why Shawshank is number one. Like I love it. But I mean it's a good it's it's hard to argue like against a movie that I like to say like why it shouldn't be number one. Or why Green Mile shouldn't be 29. I guess they're solid stories, but I don't know if, like... I don't know. Are visually they that iconic? I don't know. Probably not. They... I think they have a weird feel to them. Um, where, like, there are rated movies where R-rated things happen. But they sort of feel like PG kids for some reason. <laughs> Maybe it's the music, uh, and it's like the lighting. Um, but I, I would say like both both of these movies, not not so much his uh, his, his third uh, Stephen King movie, The Mist. Um, but but I would I would say both of them have this like a a very accessible, nostalgic, familiar tone that um, that doesn't even necessarily complement the material that's in both the movies. 
But yeah, you bring up an interesting point because the IMDb top 250 is not like Rotten Tomatoes. It's not just like what's the movie most people agree on. It's it's an average of the ratings. So that's that's genuinely the highest rated uh, movie on their site, which is wow. That means a lot of people are giving it tens. I think you definitely hit the nail on the head with the appeal and that this is a movie I could imagine an eight-year-old and an 80-year-old enjoying, <laughs> you know, because it is nostalgic, but there, it also, like, uh, plays into, like, just deep human emotions that I feel like everyone can connect to in some way. Uh, so, yeah. Though, the Green Mile, I noticed, isn't, obviously isn't as acclaimed. It only has a 72% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I was trying to think... Generally speaking, what do you guys think are some of the weaknesses of this movie? Why, why, why critics maybe didn't take a shine to it as much as as fans, as general audiences? I mean, and I'm not 100 percent sure. I the length, I guess. Well, <laughs> there, there's there's one big hulking, uh, uncomfortable issue that I don't even know if we want to really get into on this podcast, which is the the whole magical Negro aspect of this this story like a literal uh, magical negro <laughs> yeah i think uh when spike lee coined the term he, he specifically was referencing this and uh and maybe also the legend of bagger vance mm, although that movie <laughs> just kind of came and too. went i don't i don't know if anyone even really rem- I, what so he's like a ghost golfer will smith in that one i think <laughs> it's a ghost go- i don't know or a, i see a ghost caddy <laughs> a ghost caddy he's not even allowed Helps to on his swig Okay, we gotta watch this now. We gotta watch Bagger Vance. <laughs> I don't actually know much about it. I feel like it was it was kind of popular and it was successful for its time. But no one really talks about it now. I mean, The Green Mile has the, the legacy of it got nominated for Oscars. It has Tom Hanks, um, Stephen King. But no. I guess Bagger Vance's legacy is... Remember Matt? You remember when uh, Will Smith was a ghost golfer? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I did take a couple notes just trying to read into, um, Steve, maybe Stephen King's response to, uh, John Coffey. You know, this is definitely something that Stephen King himself has been guilty of before, too. There's that, um, in the book The Stand, there's this trope with the Mother Abigail character. Um, you know, and I, I heard rumors on the, the recent Stand miniseries that Whoopi Goldberg, who played Mother Abigail in that version, would, like, go to her trailer and try to rewrite her part to make it feel <laughs> less, you know, stereotypical. Um, so w- whether or not King is justified in, his, in, in why he made John Coffey black and, and why he, he, he took the story in that direction, he, he said... Um, his explanation was that John Coffey is black because given the time, place, and setting of the novel and the crime for which he's convicted, it was the only way to leave no doubt that he would have been sentenced to death. I don't know if that entirely tracks, but I, I, I get what he's going for, that if you know you have a black prisoner in this time and place, he's going to have no chance when it comes to a fair trial. Um... It just, it's always a little, we kind of touched, talked about something when we talk about Candyman. It's always a little iffy when a, a white writer tries to make a comment on this kind of subject. It always comes off as kind of hollow in, in a certain way. Well, yeah, and there's other aspects to this trope that make it problematic. It's, it's, it's not just that he is a 
uh, a black person that has magical powers. It's um, you know that he uses his powers exclusively to help white people. It's that he has you know like a profound disability. Um, it's it's all these um, mm-hmm. subtle uh, cultural connections that that link back to uh, both like minstrel. Uh, media and then even just slavery um, in, in general with you know him having to like I said use his powers exclusively to help white people it's it's something that could have been helped a lot if there was more than one black person absolutely. in the story absolutely no, you're right. um, yeah a lot of these reasons are, uh, are reasons why the original choice for John Coffey turned this movie down. I've seen, I've been, oh, who's I've that? seen a lot of articles about this. Uh, I, Colin's laughing. I bet, Colin, you can already guess. Well, I thought it was funny just because I, when I was watching the movie, I was like, well, this is such inspired casting. Like, I can't imagine who else they would have cast in this role. I guess they could have gotten Shaquille O'Neal. It was That Shaq. would have been terrible. And then, yeah, later I I read that they actually were thinking about casting Shaquille O'Neal. Which would have been terrible. I mean, Shaquille says, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he didn't want to get in do it because he didn't want to get into the racial stuff. But also, he, he does say, like, I could not have done as good a job as Michael Clark Duncan. At least Shaq, is, Shaq knows his his limits. This would have been weird. Yeah. With, this would have been bad with Shaq. Like, it, it might have made it a bad, so bad. movie. Um, another another person who was considered, though, was Ving Rhames, which I think would have been good. Uh, yeah. But I still think Michael Clark Duncan is so good in this movie. I don't think I've ever seen uh, a Ving Graham's performance that has the the same emotional depth. He's that, not. Uh, Mike Clark Duncan brings to this role. Yeah, he doesn't often play that kind of purity. He's always like a little <laughs> intimidating or just like detached and cool. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, this is one of those movies where I actually now get mad that michael clark duncan didn't win the oscar hmm. we, we talked about this specifically this category uh, a <laughs> handful of episodes ago 1999 best that's right we're back in 99 i forgot <laughs> uh because you know I, I i do believe that uh michael kane who won is was the least deserving of the group to win that award yeah because he'd already won one mm-hmm. it's a good performance but i mean he went up against michael clark duncan Haley joel osmond and uh, and Jude Law for Talent, Mr. Ripley. I think those are all more interesting performances. And it's sad too because of, of course Michael Clark Duncan's passed away and he never quite got a role um, this emo- like you know this deeply emotional ever again. He mostly played tough guys. Yeah. Um, uh, but but that's also it's just he. <laughs> I mean, his whole career was basically a ten year span. It's. Uh, it's really tragic that we didn't get to spend more time with him. I like to think there's a there's another parallel dimension where uh, Michael Clark Duncan is showing up in the Fast and Furious movies as like another one of Dom's brothers. <laughs> yeah. Where they're like, oh, that Toretto oh, gene pool's just so mixed up. <laughs> we gotta keep finding the biggest person imaginable and the tiniest sports car. Like... Doesn't that feel like a good fit, though, Michael Clark Duncan in a Fast and Furious movie? Like, he's a bad guy in his yeah, first one, and then he's a good guy the one after that. 
he's he's gigantic. He's got a very deep voice. It's perfect. He's bald. He's bald. Which is a pre which is a prerequisite <laughs> for those movies. Even Han's got shorter hair now, man. It's it's just the way the things are trending. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's a shame. But at least we have this great performance um, in this movie that I like a lot. Uh, based off of a, a, a book that um, was released in an interesting way. I just wanted to touch on this because you don't hear about this very often. The Green Mile, uh, which came out in 96, wasn't released as a standalone novel. It was actually released as a, like a serial, uh, serialized, like one book a month for ah, six months. One of those. And this came from a, a friend. Oh, wait. Yeah. It wasn't in a magazine or something. They were just putting out chunks Little, of Little, like, 99-page novellas, basically. Huh. This is actually, I've actually read the first two, because I was stupid enough to be like, you know, if I on my Kindle, if I just buy these, like, you know, and, and read these, like, 99-page versions, it'll feel like, you know, they're so short that I'm getting through it faster, and then I'll finish it. Uh, but I only read the first two, and then... I can't even remember if it was a better deal to buy them separately like that. It probably wasn't. Um, but, you know, it's, it's good. It's it's pretty much just like the movie. I think chronologically it's a little different, though. I don't think John Coffey's in the first book, the first 99 pages. Uh, they have the... I mean, that tracks... I don't think he's in the first hour of this but movie. But the thing is, they have the execution of Arlen Brittlebuck, Graham Greene's character... Before John Coffey gets there, and in the book or in the movie, that's different. Yo, uh, they're there at the same Is time. Is that really? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty they sure. Are? Graham Greene. I don't know now. Now you got it mixed up. I, I'm pretty sure. It's a lot. It's a long movie. I don't because I feel like we would have seen John Coffey react to that execution, and I don't have any memory well, of him I, reacting to it. I feel like he must arrive after the first execution. In my mind, he does show up at the beginning of the movie but he just hangs out in his cell most of the time he's not doing anything he's, yet he's like overshadowed by the other more talkative <laughs> members of the jail yeah like Dell, uh the great michael jeter rest in peace mm-hmm. as well yeah another tragically lost actor uh i think he died in what like 2003 or four i think his last movie was jurassic park three <laughs> but he was always good he's good in the fisher king uh, but yeah, there's. I don't know. He serves a sort of realness in his performances that I've seen him in that not a lot of actors have. There's just something about him um, that, that makes me very empathetic to him in in every movie. I've I ever mean, seen also him. he just looks like a regular person. He's this short guy with kind of like, you know, not much hair and like all scrawny, and he had a great look. He's a great character actor in that way. All right, so let me see. Let me rattle off a few more fun facts before I get more into the movie. I'm already hit on a few of these. Some other uh, things that I find interesting. This is the only King adaptation to crack the $100 million mark until it. So I guess not even Shawshank made as much money as this. Uh, though Shawshank came out in a crowded year. Well, Green Mile did too. It, it's the power of Tom Hanks, you guys. He yeah. just brings in the people. Hanks compels you. <laughs> Can't say the uh, same for Tim Robbins. Now, Stephen King's first pick for Paul Edgecombe when he found out they're making this into a movie was Tom Hanks. 
But the studio mm-hmm. actually offered it first to John Travolta, who turned it down. <laughs> Do you guys think that would be a good movie too, John Travolta? As Paul Edgecombe? Hmm. I think it'd be fine. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this part is reacting. I don't know if you have to infuse that much personality into the role. But Hanks is <laughs> its always good to play that, that type of part. He'll just always feel more relatable. Mm-hmm. Whereas John Travolta, you know, Scientologist, seems like he's got a lot of secrets. There's, there's, yeah, wouldn't there's be too quite much going on there. <laughs> I think it'd still be a good movie, but yeah, it wouldn't be. I don't think it'd be as good. Um, another little note that I wanted to get out there. I don't know where to fit this in, but th- this story has, um, weirdly enough, almost the exact same plot as an episode of Amazing Stories from 1986, <laughs> uh, which is that old Steven Spielberg produced anthology show. There's an episode called Life on Death Row about a prisoner played by Patrick Swayze who has healing miracles and is then executed. Um, I found this so interesting. I actually wrote about it on our blog in 2008. (laughs) So you can check out that article. Oh, I will. I'm sure it's really good. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. I don't think it's any more than that. Um, Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I just thought, you know, people need to know. People needed to know in 2008. People need to be reminded uh, now. Um, I wrote that. I definitely think Michael Clark Duncan should have won the Oscar. I also think Thomas Newman should have won, in my opinion, the Oscar for Best Score. I think the reason he wasn't even nominated was because he was also nominated for American Beauty, which is a good score. I know. I know it's fun for people to dunk on American Beauty now, but I always like that score. Um, I believe the winner was a movie that no one's heard of called The Red Violin. Mm-hmm. Uh, score by John Corigliano. I guess because it's, it's like a movie about a violin, so the voters are probably like, well, this, this is about music, so this, this has to win. <laughs> you know, it's like how the, at the Oscars are like... You're probably right. This yeah. movie, it's like when Bohemian Rhapsody won Best Editing, even though... Uh, John Ottman was like, I'm so sorry the editing's so bad. But then he won an Oscar because it has the most editing. <laughs> you know, they just like a lot. Um, and then I wanted to mention that I first saw The Green Mile because I saw a spoof of it on The Simpsons. And I'm like, well, I have to check this out now. It was a 2002 episode where Homer ends up briefly on death row do you guys remember this episode no it's a very strange parody because he's like he thinks he's gonna go get executed it turns out he's on a prank show that's like the ending mm. shtick uh but he mm. like walks by a prisoner who looks just like john coffee he says give me your hands boss and he does and then he goes i'm gonna kill you i'm gonna kill you which is really weird i'm not sure what the joke is uh and then after that, that he, he actually deserves to be in jail <laughs> and, that, and, that, and, that, and then Mr. Jingles shows up and he says you want some cornbread Mr. Jingles and then he says he's going to kill Mr. Jingles <laughs> in retrospect this isn't very funny but I thought it was a very bad. weird a very weird uh, reference and it's weird that that's what got me to finally watch this movie back in 2002 
You know, I think I went on a whole Frank Darabont thing back then because I remember watching Shawshank around the same time and The Majestic. Um, right, The Majestic. Kind of the forgotten Darabont movie. The forgotten Jim Carrey movie. The forgotten everything. <laughs> it's the forgotten movie. The forgotten movie. It's okay. It's fine. It's an, it's a good idea. I think the worst part of it is that it stars Jim Carrey. <laughs> um, it really should have starred like like, I mean, he's, he wasn't a, a big star back then, but Paul Rudd in The Majestic is a much better movie. Just putting it out. Why Paul Rudd? <sighs> I don't know. You need kind of like a, a, a fresh face, kind of like young guy who like everyone can relate to. Because the, the premise of The Majestic is it's about a screenwriter who's in blacklisted um, and then gets in a car crash and gets amnesia and then wakes up in a small town where everyone thinks he's this um, this soldier that died in World War II who's now come back to the town. And he goes to work at the movie theater with his dad, Martin Landau, called The Majestic. Um, and then like he slowly kind of realizes over time wow. that he's not this guy. He's this screenwriter. And even, like, that is the most the blacklist uh, concept I've heard <laughs> for a movie. And it takes place in the 50s. I don't know if they were doing those back then, but that for sure was like number one on the blacklist if there was one. It's a good idea. I just think Jim Carrey's kind of bad. It's a little long. It's a little sappy. Um, but not terrible. I, it, makes me, it definitely makes me wish Frank Darabont would do something like that again um, instead of doing like... Or anything. Or anything. You know, I was reading recently, we'll get to the Green Mile eventually, that... Um, he was he has been working on a script for a long time that's like a civil war epic i'm like yeah that sounds about right but he could just not get financing for it so i think that's his problem is he has lofty ambitions what the fuck he's got two movies on imdb's top 250 he's created one of the biggest hit shows the last decade it, you won't give him money to make some that shit that does kind of sound like um like a movie where it's like this is going to get oscars regardless right I mean, who knows? It could backfire. It could be like, what was that, Free State of Jones? Oh, yeah. Because um, I used to really like uh, Gary Ross in terms of, of writing movies that were kind of whimsical dramas. And he kind of lost his touch at a certain point. Or at least people don't want to like finance those kinds of movies anymore. Uh, you know, there really was no excuse for Free State of Jones being so bad. I, I didn't see it, but I, I feel like everyone was talking about it being terrible. And that was during the Matthew McConaughey McConaissance. Um, that's one of those films that kind of brought him back down to, okay, this guy isn't that good. <laughs> that and that movie where he's like looking for gold. You remember that? He's like wearing like a prosthetic gut and he's bald. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, that right. sounds kind of familiar. Where he's like looking for gold. I don't remember. Yeah, <laughs> He does have a movie called Gold. Oh yeah, this is it. Yeah, Gold. That's hilarious. That was the that was that's definitely Dark that's definitely the end of the reconnaissance, <laughs> or maybe Dark Tower. I don't know the timeline there. Dark Tower. What or a uh, that Serenity movie. <laughs> oh, the one where he's like a fisherman, but then it's like uh, it turns out it's like a video game or something. <laughs> <laughs> One of the most unexpected twists of all time. 
so let's go through the Green Mile plot a little bit. It's actually not that complicated of a movie. Like, I was surprised the Wikipedia breaking down the plot is pretty short. And I'm like, yeah, there's not that much that happens in the movie. They just take their time with all of it. This movie is the ultimate test for not taking a bathroom break. Ooh. Because you're it's watching great... a guy that has bathroom problems. Yeah, because the first hour of the movie is a guy who's like got to pee so bad. And then it's like, now we're going to give you two hours of movie after that. And you just have to sit there. Wow. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, yeah, we have that brief opening um, where John Coffey is being uh, tracked down by locals. Uh, this is in Louisiana. But the starting of the movie is modern day, where we have old Paul, played by Dabs Greer. Um, Great choice, by the way. He's really sounding like old Tom Hanks. Now, I can't remember if I I brought this up maybe off podcast recently to you guys, but uh, as you may know, because I can't remember if we talked about it, Tom Hanks was originally supposed to play this part in old man makeup, but... um, they didn't think it worked too well. They didn't think people would buy it. And I, as much as I'm curious to see what that would have been like, I do like this actor quite a bit. I think this was the right direction to go. Right? This guy over Tom Hanks and old yeah. makeup. No, definitely. Um, Especially if he has to be 108 years old at the end. Then you're, then you're forced to think too much about the fact that this is not an 108 year old man this is tom hanks you know that, not makes that the guy of, in this looks that old you know that makes you think of little big man you remember little big man sean <laughs> yeah dustin hoffman's like 130 or whatever at the beginning <laughs> he looks yeah. like a keeper. it looks it's distracting it's yes yeah. and then i the the story i heard too was that to to make his voice sound all cracky and bad he just like shouted in his trailer for like an hour so that his voice, he would just genuinely lose his voice. Um, so yeah, he doesn't sound good either. He looks bad and sounds bad. <laughs> like that movie though. It definitely make me think about, it just seems like a very late 90s thing to have a movie set in the past where an old person bookends the film by being like, I remember... <laughs> Like saving, was, like saving Private Ryan, like saving Private Ryan and Titanic, also. And Titanic, that's right. This <laughs> is just a thing. People are looking back. I think, yeah, it's a lot of navel gazing at the, you know, because it's the end of the century. That's true, yeah. Uh, and it, and it was probably the 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 most change that had ever happened to the world in a century as mm. well. It's kind of when all the World War II veterans kind of started to slowly pass away too. So, kind of the end of that golden era yeah people who had lived through the depression um and world war one as well and then they'd seen the cold war and the invention of television and widespread usage of automobiles and airplanes i mean it was a crazy hundred years (laughs) i get it uh it's just it's it's funny that there was so much of it specifically in this period so Paul Edgecombe, 108 years old, lives in an old folks' home, goes on... St- Spoiler, by the way, that's the yeah, ending I, twist <laughs> of the movie, that he's 108 years old. It's not revealed at the beginning. Okay, spoilers for the Green Mile. <laughs> Sorry. 
Uh, goes on secret walks. Uh, life is boring. People watch Jerry Springer. Would have been funny if he watched Jerry Springer and had that triggered a flashback. But uh, no, that wouldn't have been funny. <laughs> it's, it's the movie Top Hat that brings him back to the 30s. You, you've probably seen that movie, right, Colin? Oh, yeah. I don't remember much one? about it. Uh, yeah, I remember it being good. I can't re- I've only seen two of the Astaire Roger movies. Just that and uh, Swing Time. I've seen that one. Yeah, I feel like that one's better. But Oh, sorry. You, are you oh, saying that uh, Paul fucked up when he chose a movie for John Coffey to watch before his execution? I mean, made it's the a wrong good choice. song. Yeah. I heard I they cha- they changed the year of this movie from the book to just for that, so they could use that song in that movie. I think the um, mm-hmm. the book is set in thirty two, and this was a movie set in thirty five in in the past. Unless Stephen King had Top Hat in the original book and just got his dates wrong, which is also possible. Um, but yeah, nineteen thirty five, the Cold Mountain Penitentiary, uh, on de- death row, the Green Mile. Louisiana, not Maine, not Maine. Though Edgecombe, which is Paul's last name, is a town in Maine, so still <laughs> paying his respects to Maine. Thank you for pointing that and, out. Uh, that was important. Paul leads the the guards on the Green Mile, and that includes David Morse and Barry Pepper and Jeffrey DeMunn. Yeah. Real Darabont regular. Yeah. And Doug Hutchison, uh, who is now more famous for dating Courtney Stodden, I guess, than his acting career which is too bad because he was a great asshole in movies and shows he's such an asshole in this it's like so much though that like I feel like if I met him in real life I'd be like you fucking suck I mean he probably does (laughs) but like he does such a good job playing an asshole I don't know if aside from him and David Morse if these other guys really stick out that much though um I like having them I like Barry Pepper I guess would have been yeah it's a, seeing Barry Pepper's a good reminder that it is the 90s year or two before uh, Battlefield Earth when it's like okay this guy's probably never going to be a leading man <laughs> <laughs> and 61 underrated movie with Barry Pepper oh uh, yeah like that movie I think it's isn't that directed by Billy Crystal good movie yeah yeah I've seen it Barry Pepper in uh, was it Thomas Jane Thomas Jane that's another one of Darabont's mantle. guys um, was it was Barry Pepper the dad in that Crocodile House movie? He sure was. Crawl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he still turns up. He's good. A, a great movie. A great film. A lot of fun. I, which sounds like I'm saying that sarcastically. It is. It, is it was fun. a lot of fun. You'll enjoy. You'll enjoy watching that one. Um, but I like I like these guys for the most part. I love David Morse. Can never get enough David Morse. He needs bigger roles and things. Yeah. He, Another big man. Another big man. Yeah, I was surprised. I was looking up um, some of the heights of some of the actors in this movie because I was so impressed with how James Cromwell is in this movie as the prison warden, and he's he's the mm-hmm. tallest actor in this cast. He's six. He's six seven, and he doesn't feel that tall. Like they did a great job mm-hmm. of making John Coffey like seem like like he's eight feet tall. John Coffey seems actually too big. He's so tall in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, there is a shot of him shaking Tom Hanks' hand at one part, um, and it looks like um, 
a grown man shaking a Barbie doll's hand. <laughs> like the proportions are so wild. Do you think they use some sort of force perspective? <laughs> force perspective I, I don't know how they could do it. Maybe they got an actor yeah, with a smaller hand. Yeah, that's true. They it is just a shot it's of hand. Tom Hanks' brother. So been. He's well, maybe they brought not a small Shaq hand. in for that one. <laughs> yeah, they brought Shaq in for one hand, and they have a, a small child. For... I do know that Michael Clark Duncan has a close friend who was his stunt double on this movie. So maybe that guy's got bigger hands, or is bigger than him even, and maybe he got to. Uh... There's just a, there's another guy that's that. Big? Yeah, he had a buddy. Who, yeah, it's like, hey, can we use this guy? And maybe that's what they used him for. Um, but yeah, Michael Clark Duncan, 6'5", David Moore, 6'4", James Cromwell, 6'7". Some big men. It's a big man movie. Uh, yeah, so we got all our guards. We got our inmates. We already talked about... Well, wait, John. We don't have the most mysterious of all the guards. The guy who throws the switch on the... <laughs> electric chair who seems to just live behind that curtain like the fucking wizard of oz <laughs> who is that guy we don't see him at any other time he's just i there. thought it was funny because you know, we're doing spoilers at the end when they execute john coffee they show that guy and he's got like tears coming down his face of like what was yeah. his relationship with john coffee <laughs> john coffee's stuck in that cell we never see that guy leave his execution yeah booth. He, he's stuck in his booth and john coffee's in his cell when do they ever interact they didn't don't know the actor don't know his name also, Brent Briscoe is briefly in this movie in like two scenes, like working the same shift as Jeffrey DeMunn, like when they're like eating sandwiches or something together. Um, mm-hmm. I know Brent Briscoe. I think he was in um, A Simple Plan. I think he's the third guy in A Simple Plan. Um, the the Billy Bob Thornton Sam Raimi movie. I think he's mm-hmm. also in another Darabont movie. He's I think he's another one of the Darabont regulars. Also, Bill Sadler shows up in this movie he's a he's a darabont regular yeah as a mean guy i mean he's in his mm. eyes just no he's he's not he's not a mean guy he's not that's the thing he's, you see william sadler you see that he's in the south you're like this guy's up to no good um but no he's just a he's grieving a, a parent who went through a, a tragic uh, I mean, but to the audience who sympathizes with John Coffey and finds out the uh, the reality of the situation, it's hard to to like Bill Sadler when he's like, kill him twice. You know. Right, yeah. But also, he has no idea that he's I'm just wrong. saying we never get to see Bill Sadler. Nobody tries to tell him. We never get to see Bill Sadler uh, play someone who's not mad. <laughs> right? He only plays angry guys. Or guys who are mad at something. He plays the boring president in Iron oh, yeah. Man. That's Three. like a nothing role. I guess that's that's yeah, playing against type for him. <laughs> uh, but oh, what about uh, what about Bill and Ted as death? Oh yeah, you're you you've poked that's poked a hole in my theory. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's a delightful character. He was even back for the new one. Um, good movie. Like that one. Pretty good. Uh, and yeah, we, we briefly touched on. What are you? You want to add something there? I was just gonna say, like, he is a dick for most of it, but he kind of redeems himself at the end in Rocket Man. <laughs> okay. okay. Yes. And 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 it's also funny because his his name in that is Wild Bill. Mm-hmm. There's a character in this one that's also going by Wild Bill. 
Oh, that's true. I should just get through the rest of the cast because there's still some interesting people to talk about. Uh, I, I always forget. Mm-hmm. There's a couple actors who I always forget are in this movie. One of them is Harry Dean Stanton, uh, whose job is testing the electric chair, I guess. Like, you know, when they're walking through how um, an execution works. I guess he must be like a prisoner there mm-hmm. who also just, this is his job to work on the Green Mile. Or, or like, is he a janitor? Uh, do we see him, like, sweeping at some mm. part? Or do I just assume he's going to play a janitor because it's Harry Dean? He might do some cleaning. His name is Toot Toot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just assume that he uh, he's a prisoner who works there, just based off of, like, how schlubby he is. Though, Harry Dean Stanton's always pretty schlubby. Or at least in a lot of his movies, schlubby. Also, weird coincidence, one of the characters' names is Dean Stanton, another's name is Harry. Wow. <laughs> it's all connected. <laughs> Do you think that's why he like asked him? They're like, this is too weird. Somebody's listing off the characters. Like, oh, did you say Harry Dean Stanton? Oh, let's get him in here. He's always good. I don't know. Is that character? Na- Do you, I mean, you probably don't know. Is that character named Dean Stanton in the book too, or is that? Well, Sean, this is the most faithful King adaptation of all time. It has to be the name in the book. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it was just for lulls because they cast. Um, Harry Dean Stanton, though. That would be pretty funny. Uh, there's also some women in this movie who don't get to do very much. But they're there. Bonnie Hunt and, uh, what's her name? As James Cromwell's wife. Ah, Patricia Clarkson. Yeah. Patricia Clarkson. She's good. Uh, she's, she's got some meaty scenes, I guess. Mm-hmm. I like the part where she's sick and then they make her better and then by doing so she gets makeup yeah put on it's like she gets a, a like a makeover what do you call that like a glam up a, a glow, glow up, up. <laughs> literally there's there's definitely some like it's glowing a energy glow up <clears throat> and uh unless i'm forgetting somebody last but not least gary sinise has one scene and i definitely always forget yeah. this is a thing and i'm like is this just because the forrest gump connection the Apollo 13 connection. Him and oh, Hanks are friends, yeah. I guess. It's such a small role. It's weird. Um, but I, I guess it's fun to see him show up. Is there another one? You didn't There's mention... You didn't mention Sam Rockwell, really. I didn't! You're right! I totally... I totally... I guess I was going to hit on him when we got to that plot point. Um, yeah. While Bill Wharton... Uh, despicable character, disgusting, horrible. What what a terrible guy. Uh, good performance though. I feel like this is uh, Sam Rockwell really looking a lot like our friend Matt though. Yeah, <laughs> same haircut, same it's disgusting like teeth. He's yeah. <laughs> never brushed his teeth. I'm just kidding. I love he's, you, buddy. He's always putting moon pies in his mouth and then squishing yeah, it out, spitting them. God. Ugh drooling killing people <laughs> god he's horrible also uh someone who auditioned for that part josh brolin i think sam rockwell is more uh, obnoxious though i think that's the better casting <laughs> yeah. choice uh josh brolin's a little too scary too scary to play a murderer <laughs> to play this kind of murderer well, yeah, like a high-energy psychopath. Mm. Doesn't really seem his style. 
Um, all right, so some of the plot points. Yeah, we got John Coffee being brought to the prison. We have Arlen's execution. Um, I wrote a note that I read in the novel Stephen King uh, shows like his eyes melting. Uh, probably good that it didn't include that in this movie. <laughs> Though they could have. I think Arlen's. Melting? It's either his or um, or Dell's. So in the in the normal execution that goes fine, they show his eyes. Yeah, melting. maybe not. I don't remember. Somebody's eyes are melting. I just wanted to bring that up. That that's the most <laughs> disgusting thing I ever heard. Yeah, and it was somewhere in the book. And that is a uh, smart to not include that in this movie. Um, we get to meet Mr. Jingles. I love that section of the movie where it's just them watching a mouse and it's got very whimsical music. And they're like... Yeah, and it's it's the depression. So, like, they're watching a mouse just, like, walk around. Like, it doesn't... They, they act like it does tricks, but it doesn't really. <laughs> but... There's like life is so hard at this time for everyone, so it's it feels amazing to them anyway. Uh, yeah, he learns to do tricks later. People like that. Which, which I mean, if this movie was made even just a few years later, they would have been a CG mouse jumping through hoops. <laughs> so glad juggling no mice. fire. And it's tough. I heard they trained. I think it was like twelve mice because each of them can only basically learn one thing um, for the movie. Uh, so they could have a mouse I think even for the pushing the spool they had like a string that would pull the spool and the mouse would follow it so that's how they did that a little behind the scenes for you yeah I mean I wonder even like uh, how long do you think a mouse lives maybe just like a couple years years. about so they probably only have... I don't like uh, this. I don't like this conversation. <laughs> I don't like to think about all the dead mice. Like, whenever you hear about Milo and Otis... I'm and not saying, the I'm not saying dying. they're dying. <laughs> but, you know, there's probably only a few... Like, it probably takes a while to teach them tricks, and then they get old, they can't do the tricks anymore. It's probably only, like, a few months. Okay. They, like, and work with a mouse, retire. and then it's got to retire. And they go to the... Yeah. They had a name for the imaginary, like, mouse retirement place. Yeah, it's some sort of like circus or I don't yeah. remember. Um, I can't remember what <clears throat> um John Coffey's first miracle was. Was it Tom Hanks? Was there one before that? Yeah. yeah. Um This is such a like this this movie scares me so much of like getting what Tom Hanks has in this movie. I think they call it a bladder infection, but it seems like there's a lot of male ailments that are similar to this that are more common that scare me. I know they scare you too, Colin. Um, well, kidney stones scare me, but this is a urinary tract infection. That seems or like bad. a bladder infection or something. Seems just as bad. Either yeah. way, the, the fear of not being able to pee mm-hmm. uh, is a nightmare. <clears throat> but, um, but he grabs his crotch and there's glowy lights lights always explode whenever uh, John Coffey does a miracle and then like a bunch of bugs come out of his mouth <laughs> that's maybe one thing that doesn't look great in this movie but I think it is a cool thing to have see and I'm looking at it in my memory it's like bees um, mm-hmm. you know it's, it's like that scene from Candyman where like a bunch sure. of bees come out of his mouth but now that I've watched it again it's like I'm not even 100% sure that they are bugs because they just kind of float up and then they dissolve into the air i always assumed it was like a biblical thing like 
was it is there locusts in the bible but those are a lot bigger yeah so i guess i assumed yeah, like gnats or like... flies um but maybe yeah maybe it's just like bad energy or something it's not like he shoots like fireflies into people's mouths or something <laughs> that would be cool he does try <laughs> yeah um but yeah he heals paul's uh bladder infection and that's when paul realized that this guy's something special and that he could pee and then he can have sex with his wife four times in one night mm-hmm. he's trying to get another uti <laughs> right back on that <laughs> horse back in the saddle uh, the next note I have, because I was just kind of jumping around um, with plot points, even though there's probably like an hour between <laughs> what we just talked about, what I'm going to talk about next, um, is Dell like training Mr. Jingles and then us getting close to his execution, um, which is one of the most depressing parts of the movie. I think the end is probably more depressing, but Dell's execution. Even though I was like looking up what his crimes were, and they're pretty bad. <laughs> um, they don't go into it in the movie, but in the book, I think he raped someone and then murdered them, and then tried to hide the body by like burning it, and then that fire spread and killed a bunch of people in like an apartment complex. <laughs> Little harder to sympathize That's pretty with bad. after that, but in the movie, at least he's seems like a sweet guy um mm-hmm. i think it's just such a good performance too and the fact that he has that close bond with mr jingles uh but of well and and, his, and even his last words where he's he's like it's too bad we couldn't have met earlier in life yeah. like um <laughs> yeah as someone who is pretty opposed to the death penalty uh, it's it's scenes like the two of the three executions in this are, are part of why i mean we we see one person who is is clearly reformed being executed and then we we have another person who's executed who is innocent of the crime they're accused of uh two pretty compelling cases for the government not to be killing human beings i mean yeah sad in that respect and then also in the way that dell is executed because part of the procedure is wetting a sponge before they put it on your head um but then uh doug hutchison percy does not i wasn't 100 percent sure why he chooses not to wet the sponge he's sadistic is it because he wants him to suffer more is that is that the reason yeah he 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 hates him yeah i mean yeah he says right before um kills him that that mouse farm or circus is not real Right. Uh, I mean, he he hates him for a few scenes, but I think the big at the at the reason the the big reason he hates him at that scene is because he had uh, stomped on Mr. Jingles, um, and then uh, John Coffey had, had brought him back to life, and then uh, Mr. Jingles went back into um, uh, Dell's cell, and they were both kind of like making jokes at. Um, they were both, yep, the mouse and the human being. We're both making jokes <laughs> <laughs> at Percy's expense. Um, so that was really pissing him off. The Disney version where Mr. Jingles can speak. And then the electric chair can also speak. Barking. <laughs> yeah, the, the, it's like, it's it's uh, it's a very visceral and compelling 
way to show executions in a movie. Uh, but to me, it is insane that anyone ever thought the electric chair was an acceptable way. Yeah, like even if you are in favor of the death penalty, I can't imagine being in favor of using the electric chair. Um, you compare that to the to a, a fucking guillotine, and the electric chair seems so insanely barbaric. And uh, I guess it's just and yeah, with the ways that it can go wrong. Guess it's just less messy. Here. There's no, there's is no it? blood. They're all in one piece. In theory, You're frying a human being it probably smells horrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. James Cromwell talks about the smell for this particular execution, but I imagine even in the one that goes well, it doesn't smell good. Um. Yeah. No. Yeah. This this execution goes horribly wrong because they didn't wet the sponge and uh, Dell like bursts in flames. Blue flames oh too, God. electric fire. And I like turn it off, and but times like he's not dead yet. I'm like Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Got to keep going. Yeah, and James Cromwell says that smells going to be in here for like years. And and even Percy, who did this, is so disturbed he turns away. Um, they they make yeah, him turn watch. and watch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're in favor of the death penalty, watch this movie and tell me that you you still feel that way. I know it's not quite like this, and I don't think the scene is 100% accurate to how this would work in real life. But uh, still, dude, it's barbaric shit. Uh, and it's 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 a real downer. Um, okay, so the next note I have is when they uh, break out John Coffey to take him to the warden's house to heal his wife. But yeah, we get that powerful scene at the warden's house where uh, John Coffey... Um, heals his wife and like I guess sucks in the tumor or the bad energy because he doesn't mm-hmm. immediately spit it out because he plans to use it later um, when he gets a, when he gets a chance to get close to yeah. Percy and I've never been sure if when he spits all the 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 bad energy or the bugs or whatever they are into Percy's mouth if that gives Percy a tumor or if that just makes it so John can like control him what do you guys think I think he's controlling him but I do think he does exactly what he wanted him to do which is weird because like ordering a hit on someone who's on death row feels pretty unnecessary um, but we do like to see it I don't like right? I I <laughs> I don't like this actually. Okay. No, I think, like, I I understand that um, the John Coffey is not necessarily an angel. He's not necessarily a perfect, pure human being. Um, but it does seem out of character for him to be like, I need to kill this bad man, and it needs to happen before I get killed. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands to make sure he's dead. Um, like, I, I could get... I could, I could, honestly, I would get more behind him wanting to kill Percy because Percy is uh, a bad dude who's just taking advantage of everyone. Like, he's... One of the things that's, that's recurring throughout this movie is he's, he's lording over this uh, other job opportunity he has that he... Uh, that he can take because he's related to a powerful politician or something. 
Um, so even though he's a total piece of shit, nobody can fire him. And there's hoping that he'll take the transfer and get the fuck out of there. And he's not doing it. So I could, I could get it if if there was some compelling reason for John Coffey to want to stop Percy. But at the moment that this happens, they've all like the prison guards have already kind of settled their affairs with Percy and he's going to take the transfer anyway. And uh, Wild Bill, like he's on death row the whole time, like he's already been sentenced to die. So there's there's no reason for our paragon of of goodness, uh, which again, that's not maybe not necessarily what he's supposed to be, but he's he sort of, I mean, people call him you know like one of God's <laughs> divine creations or something. It it just seems weird for him to to take petty revenge as his last act as. As a living person. I think you raise a great point because it, it's funny. Near the end, uh, Paul is contemplating and even talking to John about we could try to break you out, let you like, just go on the run. And, you know, John Coffey goes off on this thing about how there's all this, like, horrible stuff in the world. He doesn't want to be a part of all, all of the negativity. And it's like, well, look what you did just a little bit ago. Like, you totally ruined two guys' lives. Like, you're kind of adding to the negativity a bit. Um, so yeah, I guess it does kind of go against what we know John Coffey to be. Um, it, I don't know, it is, I do find it, like, compelling though, it's shocking, it's, um. Yeah, and, and like, like you were saying, like, they're the two big assholes of the movie, and so there is a, uh, you know, a cinematic satisfaction to seeing, uh, one bad guy get killed violently and the other bad guy to be the one doing it and he ends up comatose and it's like yeah they get their comeuppance but like they also already had that scene where they locked him in the padded room and then intimidated him and he's like crying pathetic so like they had already beaten percy um and and then they it's really just (laughs) turning up to 11 i mean at the end guy. of the day, Stephen King is still the ultimate sicko, and he can't resist, <laughs> even in a non-horror story, doing something sadistic. So, I think that just that comes back to him. That's just what he likes. Mm-hmm. He likes sadistic shit to be in his stories. It just feels weird in the rest of this movie that's otherwise not sadistic, despite being about, you know, death row. Um... Yeah, what well, what would you say the movie is about? Is it about it, it, like is it a religious movie? Is it about the the like the nature of mankind and the and and the toll time takes on us? Like, what is if to, to go back to film school? What is the theme of of the Green Mile? Well, both the the conversation that Paul is having at the beginning, and the ending of the film are about how even though these guys are on death row, we all walk our own green mile. We're all just waiting till our own death. And I think it's about just trying to make the the most of your time while you're here. Um but I don't know. That's that's a big question. Yeah, and and if that is it, uh it that's a it's pretty dark because what we know is uh, he's using his extra time, his elongated lifetime, to just be sad that everyone... He's feeding a mouse! 
He is feeding a mouse. That's right. He's feeding a, a mouse that is what? Sean, in he's 108 years old. What else is he supposed to be doing? Well, he seems pretty spry. Like, why is he in a retirement home if he can take these walks every day? Good point, actually. Just because he's alone? <laughs> mm, maybe, like, his son put him there all, like, 20 years before that, even. And he's just he's like, oh, I guess I just yeah. live His son put him in there, and then his son grew old and died, and he was still in the retirement home. That's so dark. Uh, yeah, because, well, I mean, we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, let's first talk about the most depressing scene of all time, <laughs> uh, which is John Coffey's execution. He does get to see Top Hat beforehand because he's never seen a movie. And that's a nice scene. You get that great mm-hmm. shot of Michael Clark Duncan watching the movie. The, the lights above his head, like almost like a halo. Definitely intentional. Um, very moving scene. But then that execution, man... It, uh, it's it's tough. It's, he's, he, even in his last moment, he's he can't wear the hood because he's afraid of the dark. There's so many yeah. reasons to love it's John Coffey. A... I mean, aside from the hit he put out, <laughs> it's, it's childlike, yeah, innocence. But also, I you know I think from William Sadler's point of view, it's like the son of a bitch killed my kids, and he's gonna look me in the eye as we yeah. execute him. It's like that, that. There should have been. There should have been more development of of him and, and his wife. We we should have gotten to know these characters. More. I bet there's some more Bill Sadler scenes. We should have cared about them. Where's yeah. Where's my uh, two hundred minute cut of Dream Mile? Because <laughs> I know for a fact there's some more scenes of Arlen of Graham Greene, like talking with his family that they cut. Uh, so there's got to be more Bill Sadler stuff. I bet there is. Uh, but yeah, he's Pitt, yeah? Huh. Yeah. No, I mean, that's uh, that's another of my like my big criticisms. of the, Again, a movie that I really like. Uh, is that with all this runtime, we don't... Like, there is a scene where they all get together and, and Tom Hanks is like, you have a family and you have a family and your family's grown up. And... Um, and it's like, why don't we know more about these people? Why don't these characters have arcs and development? Uh, with with all the runtime, it's it's still a series of events instead of an arc to me. Yeah, maybe maybe more scenes of these characters and their relationships and the depth of their emotions, and less scenes of Mister Jingles doing tricks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and more scenes of people changing. The only person who changes is Percy, and it, his change doesn't matter because he, he gets a super tumor and commits a murder. You don't think uh, Paul goes through a change? He never executes anyone ever again after this. He, I mean, does he seem like someone who should be executing people to begin with? Like, at the start of the movie, he is a prison warden who seems to be friends with all yeah. his prisoners and doesn't like uh anyone mistreating anyone it's it he does not seem like the type of person that should have been in that job to begin with but he was definitely like a guy he was like that's the job and i gotta do it even though it's tough where then after he's like no fuck that yeah well, i mean it's also the depression right it's like oh, i'm i'm i found a job i win yeah uh, but everyone's teary-eyed. Barry Pepper is crying so much that he can't even like look at the crowd. 
<laughs> even yeah. the weird guy in the execution room is crying, even though, like, what's that guy's deal? <laughs> Maybe there's a scene in the extended version where he experiences a miracle. <laughs> like John Coffey teaches him how to love again or something. Maybe he just likes that John Coffey's always blowing up light bulbs because, like, he's the master of electricity, so he probably should, like, replace oh, those he's light bulbs. He's crying because he's like, oh, look at all this do. shit I'm going to have to fix. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, exactly. Oh man, this place already smells so bad. Now I got to take care of that. <laughs> yeah, that's that execute. It's like hitting a home run in the natural. Like everything is sparks and exploding in slow motion. Dude, just, there's not enough movies with sparks anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure now I'd be all CGI sparks. Anyways, it wouldn't be the same. <laughs> Another movie scored by a Newman. <laughs> Randy. Like the connections continue. What are they cousins? Never I think they are related. Thomas and Randy. I wonder who has more Oscars. I don't actually know if Thomas Newman has won. He must have won for something. He's been not, he's like nominated every year. He doesn't even get nominated for good ones <laughs> like this. He's nominated every year. He's just one of those guys where it's like, oh yeah, Thomas Newman. He's, he, he does good work. I feel like I watched something else with him recently i'll have to look at that later um but yeah uh did you do the new bond movie that was zimmer right oh he, i think okay. he has done a bond. he probably did because he does work with sam mendez right so he probably did a couple right all this Spectrum. there's been a lot of speculation on this podcast i could be looking all of this up and i'm not <laughs> just don't want to know uh yeah, he did both of those and 1917, so he's definitely hitting all those Sam Mendes, but I don't see him on uh, uh, No Time to Die is the name of that one. I really want to say Die Another Day. Yeah. That's a different James Bond movie. Right. Um, yeah, back to modern day Paul, where he's telling this uh, story to his friend, and that's when he, he drops the I'm 108 years old bombshell um and i like how he's like oh the math i know the math doesn't have i know this sounds like fucking crazy yeah and it kills her yeah that's the kind of fucked up how he's like i outlive my wife and all my friends and my son and i'll outlive you <laughs> like if somebody told me that i would think they're going to kill me <laughs> maybe he did and he maybe, does maybe off he screen he's bored the next the next the next scene is is him at her funeral yeah, gosh, it's a somber end. Actually, you know, I just watched the ending of this movie again today because the last shot combined with the last lines of the movie, I can't think of any other movie that like makes me so emotional, but also scared. Because <laughs> um, here's again, because remember the last shot of the whole movie is old Mister Jingles now sixty three years old, which is you know yeah what six. 60 times, however, or no, six times uh, the lifespan of a mouse or something. Um, sleeping in his little cigar box. And Paul says, mm -hmm. if he could make a mouse live so long, how much longer do I have? We each owe a death. There are no exceptions, but oh God, sometimes the green mile seems so long. It's like, and in in that with the music, it's like, okay, this mouse has lived 
to be 63. What, are you going to live to be 600 years old? <laughs> Holy shit, that's like a scary thought. That's a scary thought to go out on. Uh, it freaks me out, but it makes me cry too because I like Mr. Jingles. I'm glad that he lives through the whole movie. I think he does, in the book, right at the end, die like at 63. So I'm glad we don't have to see that. Um, man, that's that's for me at least. Powerhouse ending. Um, I have a, a dangling thread from last week that I can pick up and <laughs> segue quickly into the goofs. Oh, right, 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 right. If you guys want. Um, yeah. Um, I think what I did is I conflated two goofs into one goof. Um, because uh, the Lost Boys has a goof where Lucy calls Max, who's played by Edward Herman, Ed. And White House Down has a goof where a character named John is uh being thanked and the person says in the movie thanks jeff instead of thanks john and somehow i've turned that into hey jeff um so that's why i had such a hard time tracking down what goof that came from so for anyone who was confused last week i turned thanks jeff into hey jeff (laughs) which would be a funnier goof okay um and uh, this is my favorite kind of goof, and I am happy to report that the Green Mile also had one of these. Although it is a much harder one to identify because they're not referring to a character by uh, their real name. And also it is a character whose first name I'm guessing no one on this podcast knows. So we've talked about William Sadler several times. What is William Sadler's first no name no in this movie? Don't know. It is Klaus. I believe it is Klaus in the book and in the credits. But in this movie, at two hours and 30 minutes in, uh, his wife, Mrs. Dietrich, calls for him. But she calls out, Ralph. <laughs> Just a totally different name. <laughs> a funny name, too. Real yeah. Name. How does nobody notice that? So, is that the only time his name is mentioned in the movie? So it's an excellent question. I don't know because if if that's I, I the do. case, then maybe the character is named Ralph, but then the the credits makes it very strange. Yeah. So you're putting it on the credits, not the actors. I mean. It, I don't know if a character in the world of the movie is called Ralph. It should mean his name is Ralph. Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess you could mm-hmm. consult the book at least to see where they uh, weigh in on that. I'm going to guess based off of that last name that his name is Klaus in the book. Because it's a very yeah. German last name. It'd be funny if his first name was Ralph for some reason. It could be. <laughs> Uh, I like that stuff too. I'm sure there's a lot of good um, uh, chronology, chronological errors in this movie too. Yeah, there's a uh, the biggest goof section is anachronisms. That's, yeah, it's yeah. called anachronisms. And it's like, who gives a shit about this stuff though? It's like, uh, I think the biggest one's the one at the top, which is that it's set in 1935, but Louisiana did not do 
um, electric chair <laughs> executions until 1940. Uh, oops. But also, who gives a shit? Uh, yeah. No, I, I kind of agree. Who gives a shit? But you guys, everybody gives a shit about my Tom Hanks trivia. I've got five questions. Um, I don't really have a name for this uh, segment, but I do have a little song. Hanks, you for being a quiz. I got questions about the biz. His heart is true. He's a pal and America's dad. The Golden Girls theme by Tom good, Hanks. Very good. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, guys, five questions. Uh, the way this works uh, uh-huh. is just the first person to answer. If you don't know it, the other person gets a shot. If nobody knows it, I'll give you some clues. Um, it's all in good fun. I don't think any of these are too hard. I think you guys can get all of these. The last question I made the hardest because there's really no way you could know it. It's really more of taking a shot in the dark until somebody gets it. But that'll make it more suspenseful. All right, guys. Is this multiple choice? No. Okay. But I will give you some clues if you can't figure it out. Gotcha. Okay. Question number one. How many times has Tom Hanks been nominated for an Oscar? Oh. Huh. Whatever Colin says is correct. I'll go okay. with that. I mean, if Colin gives the answer, he gets it first because it's not multiple choice. You can't both say the same one. I'll give you some guys some time. Just, just as an actor, only, right? he's only that's, ever that's been nominated as bullshit. an actor. No, like uh, producer, or short film stuff. Uh, I'm gonna need a number at some point, you guys. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. I'm going with Philadelphia and one other one. I guess two. It's not two. Oh, okay. It's your chance to steal, Colin. Yeah, I mean, I would go like six. Six is correct. Ooh. Exactly Holy six shit. times. We have Big Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, Saving Private Ryan, Castaway, and A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. That's a tough one because okay. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have thought um, Saving Private Ryan actually, or I, I, Big is one I forget about too. But yeah, that's right. That was kind of like his, a real breakout for him. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I couldn't think of all of them. I, I wasn't even sure about Big. I thought he was would have been nominated for Sully, but I guess not. Uh, I guess yeah, it depends on what the, year, the, the field was like that year. Maybe it was a not likely, but maybe it was a, it was a stacked category or something. Yeah, I mean, really, yeah, really, the only ones I remembered was Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, and uh, Castaway. Yeah, but I figured there had to be others. <laughs> yeah, well, you got it. All right, question two: um, This 2002 comedy that was the ninth biggest film of that year does not feature Hanks, though he did produce it. Can you name that film? A 2002 comedy that Tom Hanks produced that was a big hit. God. <laughs> I can give you guys some clues if you can't. Might be tricky to pull out of the ether. <laughs> okay, I'll give you a clue. It got a sequel in 2016. It's a comedy movie. Ocean's not Ocean's Eleven. 11. It's, I guess, kind of a family film. I'm going to guess they're probably PG-13. Female star. 
I don't think any of us have seen it. Okay. I remember when we saw... Oh, this is too much of a spoiler. Is this like Miss Congeniality? Did that get it a It did, but it's not Miss Congeniality. Sandra Bullock got big again? It's not Miss Congeniality. Um, let's see. Big ensemble cast. Big hit, you guys. I'm going back with Ocean's Eleven. I'm sticking with Ocean's Eleven. Final answer. Okay, here's my here's my spoiler clue. We saw the the uh, the trailer to the sequel, and it killed. Come on, Colin, you gotta know that. Was this um? <laughs> killed. Was it what women want? It's not what women want. <laughs> Oh, we're getting there though. We're in the right. We're like in the right kind of movie. I would say the lead is someone we haven't seen in a while. They're they're mostly known for this franchise. They also wrote these films. Oh, my big fat Greek wedding! It's my big fat Greek wedding. <laughs> Produced by Tom Hanks. Ninth biggest film of 2002. Weird to think about now. None of us have seen it. Is it yeah, worth yeah. seeing? I don't know. Who knows? The, the hook being... phenomenon. What if you met my family and they're Greek? It's Nia Vardalos <laughs> and um, John Corbett, I think. Yeah. We also got Michael Constantine as the dad, who's also the scary old man from Thinner. All right. Um, I think this next one will be a little easier. I think the next two will be a little easier, and then the last one will be <laughs> kind of like my big fat Greek wedding question. Okay, guys, yeah. Tom, Tom Hanks is most famous um, in the voice acting world for voicing Woody in Toy Story. Can you name another animated non-Pixar film that he's done a voice for? Uh, Polar Express. Polar Express. <laughs> I can only find two. This yeah. is a question I came up with. Well, I came up with most of these. I, I, I did use Fun Trivia, which is a website for a couple questions. Um, the only other one I could find was the Simpsons movie. Oh, right, um, yeah. Of course, Tom Hanks has done some other Pixar voice cameos, but I wanted to make it a little more interesting than that. Okay, uh, next. What is Tom Hanks' highest-grossing non-Toy Story film? I feel like any clue I give is going to give it away. <laughs> um, I'm going to go Forrest Gump. I'm going to go with The Da Vinci Code. Sean got it. It's The Da Vinci Code. Wow. Da Vinci Code is three. Forrest Gump is four. Da Vinci Code just edged out Forrest Gump, which is crazy to think about. Um, I love that shit. <laughs> I, of course, uh, infamously fell asleep during The Da Vinci Code for... <laughs> Like 15, 20 minutes. It didn't care. Boring movie. For John, bonus points. Do you guys remember the first movie I remember falling asleep at? Um, I just want to ask, is it <laughs> is it still true if it's adjusted for inflation? I don't know. Probably okay. not. But I saw a list where it was this, so. Yeah. Let Sean have the point. I'll let him have it. According according his. to this thing I saw, <laughs> I, I feel like in the in the in this industry in film they don't adjust. It's for probably not a, for a, probably adjusting for inflation. It's probably Forrest Gump, but 
Like I feel like if you look at the list of the top grossing movies of all time, it's it's always not adjusted for inflation. So it's Which always is like stupid. Uh, it's sorry, sorry for such a controversial. Like Oz, question. the Great and Powerful, weighed more money than The Wizard of Oz. Shit like that. Yeah. Uh, my final question, though, I think it's kind of funny. What? Wait, what did you? What was the first movie you fell asleep in? Oh, Independence Day. <laughs> The second right. time, the second time, I remember falling asleep and waking up during the Brent Spiner scene. <laughs> Just Scary. in time for the best part of the movie. My last question, you guys. Um, time traveling. Tom Hanks was not the original pick for uh, the role of Commander James A. Lavelle in Apollo 13. Can you guess oh. what actor was the first choice? John Travolta. It was John Travolta. How did you get that so fast? (laughs) I was just going with the thing we went with earlier with the Green Mile. And the reason that's so funny is, yeah, he turned down the Green Mile. John Travolta Travolta also turned down Splash and Forrest Gump. Hmm. (laughs) Pretty much, why is he getting all these offers before Tom Hanks? And why is he turning them all down? Pulp Fishing was a big deal. I guess Splash would have still been close enough to his Grease days. And then everything else is, yeah, like yeah. post-Pulp Fiction. Like, this guy's hot. We gotta get him in Forrest Gump. We gotta get him in Apollo 13 <laughs> Green Mile. And no, he'd rather go do, like, Broken Arrow, Primary Colors, <laughs> The General's Daughter. Great, great movies, by the way. Face Off, I guess. They probably weren't considering Tom Hanks for that. That would have been really. I mean, that's good. just a comedy, then, right? <laughs> they put him in a three-way face-off with the other two guys for face-off. Three. I want to see all of them doing impressions. I guess that would be the direction to go for a sequel to Face Off, right? Now where it's three faces. Just keep getting more faces in there. Just getting more faces. Um, well played, Colin gets the win. Great. Sorry about the controversial question. It's all right. Glad to see everybody got some. I needed those points. Got some points. That's what made it close. Yeah, yeah, dude. Um, but no, that that's all I got. And if you like what you heard, check us out at mildlyplease.com or, or, or check us out anywhere you can find podcasts. And uh, I don't have a quote to go out on, but something about the Green Mile and how it's so long, and uh, we're all on our own Green Mile. And we'll see you next time. <laughs> I guess. Do your John Travolta do your John Travolta do your Tom Hanks impression (laughs) either or take your pick (laughs) I tried and all that came out was nothing (laughs) cause everyone just does the like oh Mr. God I swear oh the green mile is so long (laughs) I'm in heaven that's it you'll get nothing more alright thanks Jeff around me through the week Seems to vanish like a gambler's lucky streak When we out together, dancing cheek to cheek